Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a bonus episode brought to you by Change in One Generation podcast. In many of the cases I discuss on the podcast, we see how young South Africans struggle significantly with social and economic hardships. So I was excited to come across the podcast that's sponsoring today's episode. Change in One Generation is a new podcast series about young South Africans rising above hardship and adapting to change. The show is hosted by legendary journalist Ruda Lantman and leadership expert Dr. Frank Magwegwe. Subscribe to Change in One Generation on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za for more information. When the Change in One Generation podcast came on board as a sponsor of the show, they asked me if I thought True Crime South Africa listeners might enjoy some bonus content. And I didn't have to think twice about that, because I knew the answer was yes. Then they asked if it was possible for that bonus content to include some positive stuff, which is of course what their content is all about. And while true crime doesn't often produce what I would call positive stuff, I did have a few stories floating around on my list that were more inspirational than others. Do they still involve horrible crimes and sometimes the worst of humanity? Yes, sadly they do. In my genre, there's no getting away from that. But the case I'm going to discuss today does give me faith back in our law enforcement, which I think we all need right now. And it certainly was a very positive moment for the victim's family. It's 1985 in Fishhook. The coastal town is at the eastern end of the Fishhook Valley on the False Bay side of the Cape Peninsula in the Western Cape, South Africa. Although the Western Cape is now known as a province that certainly enjoys its liquor, especially some of the wines produced on its incredible array of wine estates, Fishhook was at that time a dry town. When the land that now makes up Fishhook was first made available for development into a village and then a town by the title holder of the land, he had one condition. There should never be any alcohol sold in Fishhook. That instruction, unbelievably, stuck for more than a century. And although restaurants and hotels would eventually start serving alcohol for on-site consumption, no off-site establishments managed to open up shop in the town all the way up until 2019, when on the 4th of June 2019, retailer Pick and Pay opened the first bottle store in the town. Some Fishhook residents are still protesting the presence of the bottle store and plan to lodge an appeal in terms of the Liquor Act. But... In 1985, when 80-year-old Nora Coram lived in Second Crescent in Fishhook, it was still very much a dry town. If anyone wanted alcohol, they'd have to go one town over. Nora was originally a British citizen, 
who'd been living in South Africa for most of her life. Despite her advancing years, her nephew, Andrew Kovanagh, says that Nora was full of energy and vitality. One of her favourite things was watching cricket, and she would often hop on the train and head out to Newlands to watch cricket matches there. Nora also worked with the local Cub Scout organisation, volunteering her time there as well as at her local church, which she attended every Sunday without fail. Nora had lived on her own for a long time, but she quite enjoyed her independence. She was still strong enough to do most things herself, and when she came across something she needed an extra pair of hands for, she'd either wait for her nephew to visit or she'd hire help. She'd hired one particular young man on a few occasions for help with maintenance around the house and garden work. I'm going to call this young man Tommy, because unfortunately we can't use his real name for reasons I'll explain a bit later. Tommy lived in Ocean View, an area which was established in 1968 under the Group Areas Act. At the time, the area had been intended to house predominantly coloured people, who'd been forcibly removed from their homes in Simonstown, Nootuk, Red Hill and Glencairn in the apartheid government's efforts to create racialized living areas. In early July 1985, Tommy arrived at Nora's house without her having asked him to come over. He called out to Nora from the street, and the woman went out to see what he wanted. Ocean View is just 12 minutes' drive from Fishhook today. In 1985, though, without a vehicle, Tommy would have likely walked for about an hour and a half to get to Nora's house in Second Crescent. He told Nora that he didn't have any food at home, and asked if she needed any chores done in exchange for some food. Nora said she didn't really have anything she needed doing at the time, but feeling sorry for the young man, she invited him inside and said she would make him something to eat. Tommy gratefully accepted. Once he'd entered Nora's house, things went very wrong. While Nora was pottering around the kitchen making Tommy sandwiches, the young man pounced on her. His youth and strength quickly overpowered her, but he proceeded to punch her several times before tying her up and locking her in her bathroom. Tommy ransacked Nora's home that day, taking several items of value. It's likely he'd believed he'd killed the woman, as he knew she could identify him and probably wouldn't have left her alive on purpose. But Nora Coram was not dead. She was badly injured from the assault and unable to move due to the tight bindings around her hands and feet, but she was alive. Nora listened as Tommy ransacked her house, and then eventually she heard the front door close behind him, and then the distinctive sound of the front garden gate squeaking closed. For the next few hours, Nora shouted with all her might in an attempt to get her neighbour's attention. July is a particularly cold month of winter, and Nora was lying directly on the cold floor of her bathroom. As the sun went down, the temperature dropped, and she began to shiver. By the next day, 
She heard sounds outside her bathroom window as her neighbors prepared to leave their house, and with the last of her strength, she shouted for help. Eventually, 36 hours after her ordeal had begun, her neighbor found Nora on the bathroom floor and called police and an ambulance. By the time Nora Coram arrived at the hospital, she was extremely dehydrated and in a very precarious position health-wise. Her assault injuries had caused severe swelling, and her hands and feet were also swollen from being bound. Nora was admitted to ICU, and her family was informed of what had happened. A case of assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm, as well as housebreaking, was opened with Fishhook Police. Within a few days, Nora was able to speak with police officers and provide a full statement of what had happened. She even identified the perpetrator for police. When Nora's nephew, Andrew, heard what had happened to his aunt, he immediately rushed to the hospital. He would spend the next few weeks visiting her as she recovered in hospital until he was called up for his national service in August of 1985. As is sadly often the case, as we get older, even if we're pretty healthy, a serious injury or major physical trauma can take a really long time to heal, and sometimes additional ailments will result from that initial injury, especially if there's emotional trauma accompanying it or the body is run down for any reason. In Nora's case, She'd spent 36 hours tied up in the dead of winter on a cold bathroom floor. She'd also been assaulted and experienced significant emotional trauma. As a result of all of this, she developed pneumonia while she was in hospital, and in September 1985, while her nephew Andrew was in his initial training in the army, he received news that his aunt had passed away. The charge of assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm was pushed up to murder. But despite all of the information Nora had given them about her assailant, Tommy could not be located. Police questioned people in Ocean View, but at this time in history, our police service was a force used against the majority of South Africans and not a service for all. People of colour in South Africa had a deep fear and hatred for police officers on the whole, who were instrumental on a daily basis in enforcing the apartheid government's policies, which kept them segregated and disenfranchised. Tommy seemed to have fled the area, but if he was there, no one was talking. I think sometimes we forget how far we've come in terms of technology in such a short space of time. Almost all of the technology we look to as investigative tools today did not exist in 1985. There was no DNA testing, no digitized databases. People could quite easily live without leaving any digital trace. And that is exactly what Tommy managed to do. When a family experiences a loss through murder like this, the trauma really does get handed down through the generations. All families deal with it differently, of course. For some, it becomes an obsession. For others, 
just a niggling pain that pangs occasionally. But when you look closer, it's affected so many different aspects of the family through the generations. For Nora's family, after she was laid to rest, they held out hope for a long time that Tommy would be apprehended, but with each year, that hope began to fade. The docket for Nora's murder remained at Fishhook Police Station, but it was soon covered in dust in a filing cabinet. South Africa went through immense changes in the decades that followed, and our police service changed too. Detectives came and went, and occasionally someone would look at cold cases, but the case of the murdered 80-year-old lady from Fishhook never really got much traction again. Until 34 years later, when a new police officer started at the station. Warrant Officer Detective Jeremy Martin was transferred to Fishhook in early 2019. His mandate at the station was to track outstanding wanted suspects and investigate cold cases dating back as far as he could go. Cold cases are a curious thing. The longer a case takes to be solved, the more likely it is it won't be solved. But time also does something else in some of these cases. In just the right combination of circumstances, time can be exactly what a case needs. Sometimes people don't want to or can't speak up with information they have at the time of a crime for various reasons, and time will change that. Re-interviewing people who were spoken to in an original investigation may produce new information. And then there's the development of technology. DNA, of course, has been an incredible tool in solving cold cases. In many murders or rapes committed prior to the use of DNA testing as an investigative tool, There was simply no way to concretely identify or tie an offender to a crime without such a tool. Of course, we also know that certain types of criminals, particularly the violent ones, tend to re-offend. And that often helps police solve cold cases too, because at some point, that offender's reign will come to an end. They'll make a mistake that will either link them through similar modus operandi or some type of physical evidence to another unsolved crime. One of the simplest but most powerful advances in technology for police in tracking wanted suspects, though, has been access to data. Law enforcement can now use various types of databases, both those designed specifically for them and also those designed for public use, like social media, to track criminals. In 1985, when Tommy went on the run, besides putting out wanted posters and asking the media to write about the case, police had very few other options available to them. In 2019, though, Detective Martin had a wealth of information at his fingertips. He didn't even need to leave his desk to restart the investigation into the murder of Nora Coram. With the name of the offender from Nora's statements, Detective Martin simply popped it into the various databases he had. 
There was no question about who'd committed the crime. Nora had identified her own murderer, and her 34-year-old statements ensured that she could still speak from the grave. Martin was aware that a court case with a case so old could be difficult, but he was definitely willing to give it a try. Within a few hours of skimming through the various options for the name combinations he'd been provided, Martin found the Tommy he was looking for, and the man had come full circle. His most recent registered address was back in Ocean View. Detective Martin decided he would go in with a gentle approach at first. Tommy definitely wouldn't be expecting him, although it was entirely possible he'd committed other crimes since Nora's murder, and he may be very wary of police. But that might even play into Detective Martin's favour, because the man may just confess to other unsolved crimes. So on the day he arrived at the address registered to Tommy, he didn't do so with flashing blue lights or sirens. Unfortunately, that visit would not go as anticipated. Detective Martin did not drive off with Tommy in his police car that day, headed to the station for questioning. Instead, he drove off with a heavy heart. He'd been advised that Tommy was dead. The man had died at just about the same time that Detective Martin had transferred to Fishhook Police Station. His death so recent that his profile hadn't yet flagged as deceased. After chatting with the man's family, Martin was able to confirm that this was most definitely the same man who'd lived in Ocean View and worked for Nora Corum 34 years before. He'd been in his early 50s when he passed away, but his family remembered he'd occasionally spoken about his previous employer, the one who'd been murdered. His retellings of the story had seemingly held no emotion either way. There'd been no indication to those he told the story to that he had any more involvements than simply having once worked for the woman. Details of any other criminal activity the man may have been involved in have never been released as this could identify him. Although Detective Martin is 100% sure that Tommy was Nora Corum's killer, he obviously cannot put a dead man on trial. So, from a legal perspective, he remains innocent. From a case perspective, Martin has identified the perpetrator in the case, and Nora Corum's murder is now marked as solved. Nora's nephew, Andrew, recalls being absolutely blown away when he was contacted by Fishhook Police in 2019. Although he'd regularly thought fondly of his aunt and felt sad that her murderer had never been brought to justice, he'd honestly believed there was no chance at all that the case would ever be resolved in any way. When Detective Martin told him he'd managed to track the man down and that he was unfortunately already deceased, he felt like that chapter of his family's history was finally closed. Certainly, justice and a guilty verdict would have been far preferable, but this resolution 
was more than he'd ever dreamed they'd get. And he knew more than many families of murder victims get. There are many should-haves, would-haves, and what-ifs in this case. It would have been nice if someone had looked at Nora's case sooner. But it simply was not to be. With so many current violent crime cases to investigate, detectives simply do not have the time to dedicate to decades-old cold cases. That's why detectives like Jeremy Martin are so important. He is a resource that's dedicated solely to cold cases. And let me tell you, although I know of a few jurisdictions around South Africa who are lucky enough to have these cold case detectives, there are nowhere near enough of them. And of course, that's simply a resource issue. There is no doubt in my mind that if Martin had never been transferred to Fishhook, Nora's case would have remained unsolved. But now, thanks to one detective's hard work and the victim herself being strong enough to give that full and detailed statement before she died, this is one less mystery weighing on the minds of a family. Nora's case being solved made the news in both Fishhook and nationally, and I think we need to see more of that. We need to hear about the small wins perhaps even more than the big ones. Because for Nora and her family, this was not a small win. It was paramount. Nora Coram, rest gently. I do hope that you found value in this bonus episode brought to you by Change in One Generation podcast. I highly recommend you check out their podcast on Spotify, or the platform you're using to listen right now. I'll be back with you again a little later this week. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Change in One Generation. To hear amazing stories of change, go to changepodcasts.co.za. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show.